This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett. Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. We at Heartland have written, testified, and spoken at length on the air, in presentations, and in podcasts concerning the insidious efforts by a cabal of elitists in government and at crony capitalist companies to force the world's economy to adopt and report on environment, social, and governments, governance, or ESG scores, standards, and metrics. The problem of elitists pushing ESG is not limited to the United States, however. It's a global cabal, and other countries are farther down the road than the U.S. in efforts to make ESG mandates the law of the land. To discuss the international ESG efforts, I'm pleased to have as a guest today Michelle Sterling, Communications Manager with the Canada-based research institute Friends of Science. The Friends of Science is run by active and retired earth and atmospheric scientists, engineers, economists, and energy business experts who offer insights on climate science and related energy policies for the public and policy. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on the call. Seems like we might have a little bit of lag. (laughs) So, Michelle, before we discuss Friends of Science, this recent press release, which is what brought you to my attention, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, please tell us a little bit about your background how you came to work on public policy issues and at Friends of Science, and what Friends of Science is and what its vision is. Okay, Uh, thank you. Um, I'm not a scientist. I'm the spokesperson for Friends of Science Society, and uh, I have worked in communications most of my life alongside engineers and scientists, always trying to help them explain complex things to the general public. So that's my main background. At one point, I worked with Alberta Environment as an information coordinator and uh, that's when I really became interested in the climate change issues because of course there was a lot of pressure on Alberta environment with the tar sands campaign against the oil sands in Alberta and Americans will know that through Keystone XL cancellation and the fact that now you guys wish you had more oil well we've got some we can sell you just build that pipe Now, as far as Friends of Science Society is concerned, um, we're a group that advocates for open civil debate on climate and energy policies. And uh, we think if they had that open civil debate, we wouldn't be in the pickle that we are today. And also, um, we think that there should always be a full cost-benefit analysis of some of these proposed policies. We don't see that happening, and we do a lot of that kind of work, too. So um, that's kind of where we're at, and we're now actually going into our 20th year of operation. We're a very small nonprofit, and um, we would like to ask people to support our work with just a $20 donation just to help us out, and uh, we think that that would be a fair deal for all the work we did. Our board are all volunteers, and they're all experts in their field, so you know, you get a lot of good advice for free. Well, Michelle, your press release that, that brought you to my attention talks about climate obsessions that big banks and big tech have. What are you talking about, and what is the evidence for it, and why is it dangerous? 
Well, banks are really into this net zero thing that's really being led by uh, Mark Carney. And it seems to really just be a ploy to push carbon trading and even right down to a personal carbon ration. And some of these things we detail in our open letter to the Bank of Canada, where we're wondering why they're so focused on climate change when there's an, uh, an international famine crisis and energy crisis And they don't even mention the tar sands campaign, for instance, on their website, which has caused divestment of something like uh, $8 trillion worth of investment in oil and oil sands related uh, projects. So, you know, these um, ENGOs are driving banks into this ESG framing. And it actually all goes back to the UNPRI, the United Nations Principle for Responsible Investments. This is a transnational, unaccounted, un- unaccountable, unelected body, which is, it's been foisting environment, social and government standards on everyone since about 2005. And they principally control the um, institutional investment community, which sits on about $100 trillion in assets under management. So this is why corporations, uh, the SEC, the Canadian Securities Administration, and banks are all being driven into these ridiculous um, ESG standards. And for the public, you know, ESG is a very subjective form of evaluating a performance. So, for instance, Elon Musk was recently complaining that Exxon had higher ESG scores than Tesla did. <laughs> so, you know, uh, he felt that was really unfair. But it, it may be that Exxon actually did have better ESG scores. But traditionally, we've scored companies on how they perform financially in the marketplace, not whether or not they were environmentally, socially, or governance-friendly. And traditionally, you chose directors because they brought some expertise to your company. So this ESG standard is a whole new way of accounting, and mostly it's about counting carbon molecules. And the guy behind it, of course, is Al Gore. He's the fiduciary um, guru for the UNPRI. So all this has been happening in the background since at least 2005, and the public are now only becoming aware of it as these ESG standards start to directly impact their lives. So I'll let you ask a question now. I think it went on too long. <laughs> no, there's no too long. It, you go as long as it takes to answer the question, you feel. So I've read your, you know, uh, your, your letter. Are we in the midst of a low carbon transition called for by big banks, big tech and elite politicians? And if not, why not? And it, why would it be bad for society if we did take serious efforts to reach net zero? Well, you know, if there was some magical technology out there, which was emissions free and we could implement it tomorrow, then that would be fantastic. We're not opposed to innovation, but that's just not the case. And in our press release, we cite a, an article by a physicist in Belgium, Dr. Pierre Kunj of the Free University of Belgium. And he explains to people in a very simple, straightforward way. There's a full-scale lab project. It's called the European Union. And you can look at that as a decarbonization project and see how it's been going on for the past 20 years. And the results are that it's not decarbonizing. 
and it's not reducing emissions. The only emissions reduction is that industry is leaving for places that have none of these kinds of regulations. And it's just not possible. He calls it a program failure demonstrated by the figures. And uh, so we have another little video on our YouTube channel called Just No Transition. And you can see that way back, uh, you know, 30 years ago, Jimmy Carter, uh, Amory Lovins, all kinds of, you know, well-known people were forecasting, oh, solar energy will run 30% of the U.S. by, you know, 2020. None of that's happened because it's not possible. It's an impossible equation. Physics don't allow it. Uh, yeah, the the physics are the key, and they keep ignoring the physics as if a politician says something and that changes the laws of uh, nature and physics, and it doesn't. And uh, but in trying to reach the mandated goals, as you say, their companies are leaving, and people are paying more for less reliable energy. Uh, so why is the push for a low carbon future bad for people's financial security and economic prosperity? Well, you know, the world runs on oil, gas, and coal, period. It runs on about 84% oil, gas, and coal. There's a few nominal distinctions like Norway, which is mostly hydro. But, you know, that's 5 million people. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the United States of America. We're talking about Canada. We're talking about countries that have massive aviation industries. They have huge agricultural industries. They have very large manufacturing base. You need oil, gas, and coal for that. And, in fact, you also need oil to get wind and solar power. (laughs) You need all those things to manufacture the renewables and to put them on the grid. They'll have to be backed by conventional power. And, of course, there's some nuclear and there's some hydro. The problem is hydro is specific to geography, and nuclear takes a long time to build, and there's a lot of environmental opposition to it. So, you know, the, the, the problem is that Now there's an energy shortage because uh, groups like the Tar Sands campaign, particularly in Canada, but other environmental campaigns in the States, and even the comments of of President Biden, you know, are scaring off investors in oil and gas. Uh, Comments like Mark Carney saying that firms that don't go along with climate change will go bankrupt. You know, gonna, so investors go, well, you know what, why would we invest in fossil fuels if these guys are going to bankrupt us? I'm going yes. to interrupt for two clarifications for our listeners. I'm sure many of our listeners don't know what the, uh, mm-hmm. the tar sands campaign is, and they probably don't know who Mark Carney is. So could you please uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that? Oh, okay. Well, the Tar Sands campaign started at least 20 years ago. It was mostly run out of the United States. It's against the Canadian oil sands, which are based primarily in Alberta and some in Saskatchewan. We have the world's third largest reserves of oil in the oil sands, and we have uh, clean tech processes to separate the oil from the sand and provide regular oil that everybody can use and turn it into gasoline or whatever products you need. So about uh, about 2000, the Natural Resources Defense Council in the States started coordinating a, a specific smear campaign against the oil sands in Alberta. And the people might be more familiar with the fact that they there was going to be the Keystone XL pipeline from Alberta to Texas refineries that are particularly suited for this kind of oil. 
Well, that pipeline has been a uh, football between the Democrats and Republicans for 20 years now. And um, ultimately, the tar sands campaign employed hundreds of environmental groups around the world, actually, all of whom were denigrating the oil sands. And for instance, Canada at one point had a bit of a foothold in Europe. We were going to start building more pipelines east and west to send oil to Asia and to Europe, while the tar sands campaign shut down all of those pipelines. So we've had tremendous financial losses and job losses here, and also in the States. You know, something like, uh, I think, 13,000 jobs in the U.S. were directly directly related to the oil sands, and there are at least uh, 20 states that are in the supply chain for the oil sands. So you guys have had a big hit, too. Anyway, it was a very virulent campaign, and um, engaged all the media, very well coordinated. There's a group in the States called Corporate Ethics, and Michael Marks claimed to have coordinated over 100 groups against the oil sands. So it's really a green trade war. And you see that in the statements that many of the NRDC people say. They're afraid that if there was this free supply of oil from Canada, when I say free, I mean free-flowing, um, that... If there was this kind of flow of, of oil supply from Canada, then all of their green projects would collapse. And that's probably why a lot of the activity is centered in California. A lot of it comes from tides in California, from, um, uh, what's the other office down there? Stand Earth. So, um, you know, we're, we know that there, there are a number of different actors behind the scenes. There was a recent report called the Alberta Inquiry or Allen Inquiry, and Deloitte Forensics tracked uh, billions of dollars that have come into Canada as part of this tar sands campaign. It's, it's sort of crazy because they these environmentalists form these campaigns to tell other countries, our allies in particular, Canada, uh <laughs> what to do with their energy resources and where where or if it should be even developed and sold. And yet they're almost silent when it comes to China and India and places like that as they develop their resources. You don't see their campaigns taking effect in China, for instance. In fact, they often laud China and India for their environmental efforts, despite the fact that they are the biggest emitters in the world. So it is uh, it's really hypocritical. Julie said, now, who's Mark Carney? Just because you've mentioned him twice. and uh... Okay, well, I think people in financial circles would be aware of him, but maybe regular people might not be. Mark Carney uh, is a Canadian. He's actually an Albertan, if you can believe it. Um, he was the governor of the Bank of Canada. Then he was the governor of uh, the Bank of England. Prior to those bank appointments, he had worked with Goldman Sachs for 13 years. And following his appointment as governor of the Bank of England, he was appointed as the, well, we call him the UN climate czar. And he was very active at uh, the Conference of the Parties 26, the 26th meeting of the UNFCCC, which was in Glasgow. And at that, um, at that event, he claims to have pulled together a few trillion dollars to, um, in the, what did they call it, the GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Um, so, their theory is that all you need to do is throw money at 
net zero and it will magically create some kind of new economy. And of course, that's simply not true. And again, going back to our press release, people should just read that little article by uh, Dr. Kunsch and just see the numbers. It's very clear that this is not attainable by 2030, not by 2050. doesn't matter how much money you throw at it. Yeah. It's just the physics. It's not a matter of political will, and it's not a matter of, uh, of dollars and cents. It's a matter of physics. You, you actually can reach net zero if you're willing to sacrifice your economy, if you're willing in the U.S. to go back to 1820 levels of emissions. But I don't know many people. Even many politicians who advocate going back to the horse and buggy and, uh, you know, being born and dying in, in the same home, never traveling. But that's what life was like back there. So, uh, it, it, it's a matter of physics. So, Michelle, big picture in closing. If there were a single point, just one message you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion today, what would it be? Uh, stop the Green New Deal any way you can. It's a killer, literally. It's like Ian Plimer's book, or Ian Plimer's book, Green Murder, Net Zero. That's what it means. It's murder. It will kill millions of people. And because of the energy crisis and because of these stupid, uh, we are going to see millions of people starving in the world anyway. Hopefully not so much in North America because we are a red basket here, but there will be death and destruction worldwide thanks to these ENGOs that have blocked the development of oil and gas, because those projects take 20, 30 years to build, and thanks to these stupid climate policies like the scope one, two, three, that the, um, that the SDC is presently considering. So stop the Green New Deal any way you can. And all its iterations, where it's called net zero or, Low carbon future or whatever you want to call it. You got to stop these policies that promote, uh, anti-science, ignore physics, that try and say we can run an economy, a modern economy, without fossil fuels and all the products, the 6,000 products they deliver. Michelle, we've been pleased that you could join us today and I want to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners. Uh, let's hope we speak to you again soon. Okay, well, thanks very much, and all the best to everyone. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of the scholars at Friends of Science and as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe, and when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye.